uh, Luke chapter 20 this morning. So we're going to read it in just, uh, uh, just a moment. Uh, we're going to be in verse 19 through 26 in just a, uh, just a moment. But let's just kind of give a, a quick overview of where we've been and, and where Jesus is now and, and, how we've, and how we've gotten there just for real, just like a second. Um, so Jesus has uh, entered into Jerusalem and uh, for his final week of life, right, until, until he will go to the cross. And as Jesus entered into, the, into Jerusalem triumphantly, he went to the, uh, he went to the temple, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple. He cleaned out all the money changers and all those who were uh, selling uh, all the sacrifices and things like that. They cleaned them all out. And now he almost, in a sense, he set his pulpit for his, the preaching for the rest of the week. And we've been engaging that preaching. And in particular, last week, Jesus gave the parable of the, the wicked tenants. And that was a, a parable directly toward the, uh, the wicked leaders of, of Israel at the time, and especially their, uh, their spiritual non-guides that they had before them leading them. And so, so Jesus just exposes these guys. And, and this happens to be one of the, the only parables out there that, that it's kind of universally understood. Maybe not accepted, but understood. People understood this, and they're like, hey, they're talking about these guys over here. Uh, or they're like, he's talking about us. And so they were angry. And so there is a certain anger that's building and continually build within the, the Jewish leaders uh, to where we get to uh, our passage this morning, where we'll see that even uh, becomes more ramped up. So, so as the, the word told us, as Jesus quoted Psalm 118 last week, that the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. We're, we're seeing the rejection here in the Gospel of Luke. So let's, let's look at gospel, or Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, starting in verse 19, and we're going to read this together. Verse 19, then the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. Now, we've, we've heard that before several times. They sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. But why? For they perceived that he had told this parable, the one above, against them. No duh. That's exactly what it was going to. Good job. But they feared the people. No kidding. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority of the jurisdiction of the governor. Pilate, right? Verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But as he, but he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Amen. 
This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Well, what is Jesus telling us here? He's telling all of us that we should pay our taxes. Everyone agree? Amen. Let's pray. Just kidding. That would be simple, wouldn't it? This is one of those famous passages that Jesus is quoted on quite often. I said last week that Jesus is quite the controversial figure, but this is one of those that, like, when it's convenient for people to say, they're going to say it, right? So even though they may be a, a, a hater of Christ, a hater of the church, a hater of the gospel, but they'll be quick to tell Christians, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? When it's convenient to say. But what's so amazing about this passage is that even when the Jewish leaders were doing their best, I mean, they're really working hard here to get Jesus to, to be tricked, to deceive him, to embarrass him, uh, so, or, or even worse, to kill him. What's so amazing is they're doing their best, and, and Jesus not only avoids their trap again, but he does it in a so where he manages to teach and to edify everyone around him, including us. Thousands of years later, we hear what he has for us. So this question, this question has to do with taxes to Rome. And, and this particular topic, right, is kind of one of those topics where you don't bring up in public. You don't talk about taxes to Rome when you're hanging out with your chums by the well, your friends by the well. You, you, don't, you don't do that because everybody's going to have a differing opinion. This is one of those big deals, one of those explosive questions of politics, uh, and, and no matter what you say, you're always going to make someone mad. That's kind of the, this kind of question, and that's the point of their question. They're trying to throw a grenade in there and letting it explode in front of Jesus' face to get him. So the Jewish leaders, as we saw, they needed people to be angry at Jesus. They needed to sway the crowds against Jesus and, and toward them so that they could arrest him or they can at least tell the governor or whoever is in charge to uh, arrest them. Now, here's what's also interesting. Um, if you've read some of the parallel readings of this, Mark tells us that the, the Pharisees linked up with another group called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are an interesting group, but what's really neat, or not in, neat, but different, is that the Pharisees would say politically they're like over here, and the Herodians are like way over here. They're like the exact opposites of, of everything, with their agendas, with their politics, with their ideals, and these two groups get together to go against Jesus. The Pharisees were, were nationalistic of, of Israel, right? So they, they hated the Romans. They hated their pagan worship. They hated their morality. They hated their money. They hated everything uh, about Rome and wanted Rome uh, uh, to go. And, and ironically, the Pharisees also longed for a messianic kingdom to return. Uh, ironically, and here's Jesus in front of them. Um, that would come and overthrow the Romans. They, they lived strict lives according to the, to the Torah. They, they basically taught that, that obedience was the way to life and that God would justify them based upon their obedience. 
but this other group, the Herodians, is like the exact opposite of them. They, they liked Herod, and, and Herod was quite secular, and Herod was a stooge for the Romans. So these people were more than happy to be stooges for the Romans, but they collaborated here together, united in one thing, their hatred against Jesus. But again, as we see in the passage time and time again, Jesus had thwarted their best plans to outsmart him, to outtrick him, or to incriminate him, and, and Jesus outbested them every single time. And they're angry, and they're ramping up their, they're ramping against, ramping up their strategy against them. And, and here's their, their plan, their, their foolproof plan. We're going we're gonna to come up with a question that is, that is designed and calculated by the very best of us. We're going we're gonna to have this question that's going to be so carefully worded and so strategic that, that there's going to be landmines all around him, and no matter where he steps, he's toast. No matter what he says. It's the, it's the kind of language that, that, that lawyers write in those non-disclosure agreements and things like that. And the, the little thing that Google writes that we check okay when we let, we let them read our email every single time we send one. That's, that's kind of like that kind of, it's kind of that kind of language that's, that's happening here. The perfect question to get Jesus. And, and, and now we have to have a delivery system for the question. It can't be us because he already knows that. That, that we don't like him. So let's, let's get some people that look like friends of Jesus. Let's look at some, some insiders. Uh, and Luke tells us that they're spies. They're watching and they're, they're looking and they're, they're putting surveillance on, on, on Jesus, waiting uh, to, to, for the perfect time to ask the perfect question by the purest of people. This is the deviancy of what's going on here. They infiltrated the group. There was a, a book that was written several years back by, by a guy who was a college student at Brown University. And Brown University is an Ivy League school that has a very liberal progressive bent to it. And, and this particular guy, he, he dropped out of Brown University and enrolled into Liberty University, which has set itself up as a conservative Christian University, and, and he did that not because he became a Christian, but he did that to infiltrate a Christian university, to pretend to be Christian and to be all about evangelical things so that he can come out and write a book exposing the, the fakeness or fallacies or whatever it is of evangelical Christianity. That's the kind of dark stuff that's happening here to Jesus. Look at verse 21. Look what they say. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. Hmm. And show no partiality. That might have been kind of a slight toward the parable that he just told. But teach, but truly teach the way of God. This is what you call flattery. This is called flattery. And, and all of it happens to actually be true, by the way. But why is it flattery? Because they don't believe it. It's flattery because, because they don't uh, b believe it. It's, it's kind of like if when, when maybe you were in school and you forgot to do your homework and you tell your teacher, you're like, teacher, you know, you're the best science teacher I've ever had. 
I mean, the, the way that you show us how grass grows is amazing. I've, I've never been so intrigued in my life. But I've corrupted them my homework. That's flattery. And, of course, teachers see right through it. Flattery is the reverse mirror image of gossip. Gossip involves saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. But flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. And gossip is a sin. Flattery is a sin. But here comes the question. So, so the question is wrapped up in this greasy donut oil. I just made that up. That's not in my notes. Where it smells good, but it's terrible for you. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? One way or another. So notice the language. Is it lawful? Not is it right? Not is it good? Should we? What's your opinion? Is it, is it lawful? Is it just? Is it lawful to who? Is it lawful to God? Is it lawful to Rome? Is it lawful to, for Israel? What a dangerous question that they just lobbed in Jesus' direction. Well, what is this? What, is he, what do they mean by tribute? Well, this is a tax. Is it lawful to pay your tax to, to, to Caesar? And this particular tax was, was a tax that was uh, instituted about 20 years earlier when Jesus was a little boy. And there was a little rebellion that even started then too. Um, and this one little group actually started at, after that time called the Zealots. Never heard of the Zealots? We, one of the disciples is a Zealot or was a Zealot, Levi the Zealots. And the Zealots would be the, the group later on that would, that would revolt again in, in uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, which would cause a complete destruction of Jerusalem, including uh, including the temple. The zealots were there listening to Jesus teach, waiting for him to say, yeah, stick it to Rome. We don't pay them nothing. That's what they're waiting to hear. Right? And when they don't, if Jesus doesn't appease them, what's going to happen? Right? And then, of course, everyone else, they didn't want to pay their taxes. It's unpopular to pay the tax. So if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, the Pharisees would gladly go tell everyone, see, Jesus isn't for us. He's a collaborator. He, he, he likes Rome. Not to mention the radical zealots that would come against him. But Jesus, if Jesus said, no, it's, if it's unlawful to pay the tax, you shouldn't pay the tax, then, then what would the Herodians do? The Herodians would, would, would sprint right over to Pilate and be the good whistleblower that everybody should be. Did y'all see what I did there? And Jesus would then be arrested for insurrection and fomenting discontentment against Rome and the emperor. You see the trap that they set for Jesus. You, you almost could see their excitement. Oh, we got him now. But yet undeterred, unshaken is Jesus, who doesn't rest in intelligence. He doesn't rest in rhetoric or power, but his rest in his confidence is in the Father. He's undeterred. It's not men's conniving. It's not evil, hard hearts 
make plans that prevail over and against God's plans, but it is God who is working and willing. There's so much to be said about that point. But really what we want to focus in on today is Jesus' response. How he answered that question. Like I said earlier, though, Jesus wasn't cold. He wasn't calculated. He doesn't confront them on their unbelief by asking another question back like we've seen him do before. But he answers the question. And he answers the question with, with theological depth and encouragement to the church. And it cuts through all the, all the swampy politics and the optics of, of popularity. He doesn't worry what the other people would think of him, but rather he dives deep into what is true, what is real. And, and that, in a sense, is what is instructive to us. And so it's in the, the two commands that Jesus gives right there in verse 25, the, the, the two renders, the two gives to, that, are, that go to two very different authorities, right? One being very temporary and one being completely eternal and transcendent. And yet being obedient to both of these renders do not oppose one another. That we could, can, and should do both. So our first point from Jesus' Jesus's response is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Or, where I'd like to put it, is how do Christians live in a fallen world under fallen governments? How do Christians live in a fallen world under fallen governments? The great perspective that Jesus is teaching is not just for Christians who live in 21st century America. But this is a truth that has been applicable to every type of government that Christians from the first century have been living under. Those who have been openly hostile to, to the gospel and to Christians and to the, the spread of the gospel, to those who have been open to the gospel. And we have a mixed bag of those even today. What Jesus is saying then to us is what should we give? What is he telling them we should give? What, do we, what then do we render to Caesar? Well, verse 24, he asks for the denarius. And I think this defines for us what that means. He asks for the denarius, which again is the, the tax, the small silver coin that had the likeness of, of, of a Caesar on it and a little inscription on it. And our, our money is sort of the, the same way. And on that denarius that Jesus held that day, it said this. It said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. And with that inscription, which was actually originally in Latin, there was an image, a picture, the, the likeness of Caesar. So the, the tax that Rome required, required that tax to only be paid with Roman money. That's why Jesus says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give him back 
that which has his image on it. The thing that they struck, that they circulated, give it back. Now to the, to the Pharisees and to, to the more devout Jews, they would look at such a coin, and, and it was an abomination to them because of what it said. And, and, and a picture of the, a man claiming himself to be a divine son of a god. And so Jesus saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar because his face is on it. Because his, his inscription is on it. So in one sense, Jesus is affirming here what? He is affirming the authority of Caesar. He's not affirming him, uh, affirming him as a god, but he's affirming, affirming him as the authority and as the owner of the coin. And so Jesus' logic is, is just give back to Caesar what is already his. Pay your tax with his money. So how could you object to that? If you're already giving back what is already his. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for his followers? What is Jesus telling us here? I think this has broad implications, more than just paying our taxes. Broad implications of Christians, of how we live in a fallen world under fallen governments. In the United States, here, we are grateful. We should be grateful that we live in this country. But yet, brothers and sisters, it's still very fallen, isn't it? It's still very fallen. It's not perfect. In fact, it's not always right, is it? It's very fallible. So Jesus is showing us this morning how to live in a fallen, fallible government. What kind of allegiances are we to have? What kind of relationship should we have to these temporary, earthly places and people and authorities? So it's more than just taxes. It's, it's actually showing us, Jesus is telling us is that the, the state or the government is, is actually a valid institution. It is a valid institution that we are to put ourselves, we put ourselves under, that they have authority over us, and that this, uh, um, that this valid institution is, is necessary and it is given. Well, there are certainly better forms of government out there compared to others. There's better forms of economy out there than, than others. There are some that are far worse for human flourishing and wealth creation, but human government is always better than anarchy. It's always better than without the rule of law. And as Christians, we must recognize that. And that authority is God-given. So turn over with me to Romans 13. Let's look at this text. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Doesn't feel that way, does it? Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom they are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There is a lot there, but what is very clear, what the Apostle Paul is saying and is in agreement with Jesus, is that the government and its leaders are put over us by God for our good. For the restraining of evil. And for human flourishing, that is why government is necessary and it is given, even when it is controlled by men who think they are gods, right? Augustus thinks he's a god. Tiberius thinks he's a god. And even when it's a, in a poorly ran state, what he is saying to us is that it's better than no state at all because it is still God's authority over us. It's our authority over us for taxes. It's our authority over us for our moral behavior, and we submit to that authority. Why? Because we believe that all authority has been given by God. We see very little submission to authority anymore. Why? Because we see very little of the honoring and glorifying of God. God has put these authorities over us, therefore we submit. And we submit, as Paul tells us, who is living under a pretty bad regime. We submit because it's for our good. First Peter helps us. You could turn there. First Peter chapter 2 helps us understand this even more. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silent the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not pursuing your freedom as, as an evil to, as, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants to God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Man, how could Peter say such a thing, knowing the things that he knows? Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. He has a confidence in God, the same confidence that we see time and time again in Jesus. And that is why we render things to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's. Out of, out of all the citizens of our, own, of our country and all the citizens of every country in all the world, Christians should be the best citizens. We are to be the most honest, the most just, the ones who pay what they owe, the ones who participate the most, especially when they are called upon, the ones who pray for their leaders, even if they agree or not, and those who honor their leaders and those whom God had put over them, whether we want to or not. Now, granted, brothers and sisters, and what needs to be said, there are limitations to that authority. There are limitations to that authority, and that, therefore, as Christians, knowing that we live in a fallen world under fallen governments, we must be discerning and as wise as serpents in this world. I'll give you three situations in which, in which we need to be discerning in these ways that might require that resistance of authority. Number one, we would, we would resist when asked to violate a direct command from the Word of God. We should resist when asked to violate a direct command from the Word of God. And the Bible gives us plenty of examples of this, but uh, I want us to look at Acts chapter 4 and 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell the story. It's a very pretty cool story. It's the beginning of the church. All the guys knew was to go out and preach. And that's what they did. And they'd frequently get arrested. And on this day, it was Peter and John. They went out. They preached the gospel. They proclaimed the gospel. They got arrested. They got beaten. And they told them, we're going to let you go, but don't you teach in Jesus' name anymore. They let them go. Guess what they did the next day? They went out, and they preached. They preached the gospel, and they taught. And they taught it in Jesus' name. And they were arrested again. And here's what is said. It's worth looking at. I think they could put it on the screen for you if you want to see it. It's worth looking at. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they, said, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, the name, in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Our call, brothers and sisters, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, totally transcends man's laws or snowflake triggering. It totally transcends all of that. And we will take the consequences of doing so like our brothers and sisters before us. And when we resist, we're going to face the consequences. This is why we must understand the Word of God so well. The best we can, and to be resolute in its authority so that we will know and we will be discerning when our authorities that are over us seek to subvert the authority of the Word of God in our lives. But regardless of what this government says, what the Supreme, the court, Supreme Court declares, we must never put the laws of man over the laws of God. And this might get quite personal soon. Second, 
Christians must resist when asked to participate in immoral acts. We must resist when asked to participate in immoral acts, and this is a big one. In fact, we've seen, um, we've seen other uh, recent rulings handed down by the Supreme Court in dealing with this. So the, the question, do Christians, and, and, and truthfully for that matter, any religious person with a moral conviction in their soul, do, do Christians have a right to refuse to not participate in what they believe to be immoral, an immoral act, or an immoral behavior? Well, thankfully, the ruling that the Supreme Court came down on is the side of yes. But there may be a time when one judge goes the other way. But like the case of the Hebrew midwives, way on back in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh, commanded by Pharaoh, informed the government, informed the government when these Hebrew women have their babies. And tell us, and tell us, now they knew what was going down. They knew that if they told them that the babies were being born, that they would come and they would slaughter the male babies. They would kill the male babies. Infanticide. It's really not too far from abortion these days. But what did the Hebrew midwives do? They correctly, they correctly disobeyed Pharaoh. Pharaoh! And they didn't tell them at all when the babies were born. In fact, when they were confronted about it, they lied about it to cover up the hiding of these baby boys being born. There are so many ethical areas in which, brothers and sisters, we may be asked to compromise, whether it be from government or business or home or family or school, and unfortunately, even in churches, that will ask you to compromise and to participate in these immoral acts. In recent years, Southern Baptist churches have been exposed by a secular newspaper, by a secular newspaper in recent years, of the amount of cover-ups of sexual abuse that was taking places in churches, and they were just covering it up. They finally have responded to it. But brothers and sisters, we must always do what is right before the eyes of the Lord. The last one, Christians must never go against their conscience to obey the government. We must never go against our consciences to obey the government. And this takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment. And again, we've seen this in recent court cases. But yet the Bible teaches us to not violate one's conscience. And if we if you do not want to participate in the making a cake for a wedding of a homosexual couple or do flowers for them, then by all means, don't. Don't violate your conscience. Yeah, you're going to lose your business. You're going to lose everything you own. If you live in the state of Colorado, they'll, they'll probably put you in a re-education camp. That's happening. Maybe not a camp, but re-education classes if you go against their, their thoughts and their beliefs. You'll lose your business, but at least you'll have a pure conscience before the Lord. Another example, it's becoming harder and harder for, for Christian doctors to practice 
according to their conscience. Because evermore, they're being pressured more and more to practice and do certain things on certain individuals that they do not agree with. There are groups that are literally advocating that if a doctor will not perform an abortion, or at least say that they will perform an abortion, then they should not be allowed to practice. Or they should be denied at least all access to insurers. We are seeing now even medical schools that will not even admit Christians who hold to a biblical worldview. They won't even admit you because you hold to those views. It's a whole new world, brothers and sisters, and we must be discerning and we must be wise if we are going to have to resist. And I have to encourage you in this, that if a certain dilemma, maybe not as big as this, but other dilemmas may come your way and you don't know what to do, brothers and sisters, that's what the elders of the church are for. That's what we are here for. Ask. Don't walk through those things alone. But what Jesus is telling us, commanded us, that we are to be obedient to the government and the authorities that God has placed over us, from traffic laws to paying taxes. We might be like the conscience-stricken taxpayer who once wrote the IRS, to whom it may concern, my conscience has bothered me, so here's the $175 that I owe in back taxes. And P.S., if my conscience still bothers me, I will pay the rest later. I knew we needed a joke. There you go. I don't tell corny jokes often, but there you go. We give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but most importantly, we give to God what is God's. And that is our second command that Jesus gives us. And in fact, this is the reason why we, at times, will have to resist. Render to God what is God's. And I call this having a kingdom mindset set on the glory of God. A kingdom mindset centered on making our lives lived out to the glory of God. At the same time that Jesus was affirming Caesar's authority, what was he also doing? He was being a little dismissive of of Caesar as well. Because he's looking at this, this little coin and he's probably slightly smiling to himself and maybe a few of those around him. Because here is the true son of God looking at a, a JV level emperor who thinks he is a son of a divine God. And he's just saying, by all means, just give the little guy his coin. This is little. This is small. But give to God the things that are God. If it's only appropriate to give Caesar the things that are in his likeness, what do you think it is appropriate to give to God that are in his likeness? Well, what are made? What is made in the likeness of God? We belong to God because we bear his image. Because we bear his likeness. Sure, Caesar can have our obedience and our driving 35 miles an hour when really we should be going about 45. And he can have our denarius. He can have those things, those little pieces of silver. But God, he gets our hearts. 
He gets our souls. He gets our minds. He gets our lives. Why? Because this is what we were created for. This is why we have the image of God, is to reflect the glory and the goodness of God. We reflect His glory. It is what we were made for. And what a perspective then that is. That all of us are made in the image of God. What dignity, what respect, what love then we owe to one another. Man, in this secular age, we have lost dignity. And literally, no dignity. How to treat people with dignity and respect. It goes, it goes far deeper than treat people respect because you would like to be treated that way, doesn't it? It goes far. And we treat people respect because they are made in God's image. But it changes everything. Even to the people we disagree with. Even to morons that we disagree with. There I am. <laughs> well, Paul called people morons too. I can't. We respect, we love, we care. Because that is what we do because we are created in the image of God. And we're all made to reflect the glory of God. We're made to reflect the image of the glory of God. So what we see here is God's not worried about little things of money, is he? I mean, he's worried about how we, how we, if we love it, if it's our idols and such. But he's, he's not worried about if we're paying our taxes. Like, he's not worried about that. He wants us be obedient in those things. Do them. But I get your hearts. I get your, your hearts. You s submit to me. My, my kingdom is not built and destroyed by money and power and position. The kingdom of God is made up by people, those who have been made in my image, devoted people to the glory of God. God does not redeem governments. He uses them to do good in the world, but he redeems people. He redeems you and he redeems me. And boy, does that free us up. It frees us up so much. Because we now we're we still, I mean, it was big back then, it's still here today that rulers and governments just set themselves up as being the would-be gods of their people. I mean, I mean, how I mean, is it very easy or hard to figure out that our government's just trying to be Jesus to everybody? trying to be the savior they can't be they can't they cannot be our our saviors and they're prone to do this and those who are under their authority are prone to attempt to invest their lives and to hope in them politics and politicians has become the new religion in america the new religion and in many ways politicians have set themselves up to become their god they're more than willing to step into that void and be their people's God, to be their priest, to be their pope. And sure, yeah, they don't call it religion, but it is worship. It is worship. But no Caesar, no government, no president can save us. And this truth in that Jesus is telling us and commanding us that we are free to give more, than the, to give more and to do more. We are free then from giving them more than what they are owed. 
But God has made us in his image. And so only he deserves. And he can justly command and demand our ultimate love and allegiance to him. He is the one who has given us all. He is the one who has demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross. So he is the one to whom we give all. In some sense, again, this is good news. Wonderful news. That's glorious news. But in the light of the hysteria around us, the worship of politics and politicians, this should free us. Especially in a world where it's only going to get crazier. Nuttier. Brothers and sisters, as we close, this passage is really about having our priorities straight as we live in a fallen world under fallen governments. Our priorities straight and where they ought to be with the Lord in Christ alone, the one who has made us. And isn't this a lesson that we need to hear in this day? We're not exempt from showing the appropriate respect and obedience to the authorities that, that are around us, whether we agree with them or not, because we trust in the Lord that the Lord has put them over us. But our allegiance and our faith and our confidence is not in them, but in the Lord, which makes us steady, which makes us unshaken and not given into fear that is so prone around us, which makes us not to, to give in to the sensationalism that's driven by every news cycle every day. Everything that we are and all of who we are to the very last detail was made by him and for him. And so let's, lend, let's render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, the things that are Caesar's, but let us render unto God what is God's, you. And in both, in doing so, we will find peace and joy and life. So whether we eat or drink, we can do all for the glory of God. Sola Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this truth of the sovereignty of your hand over all things, including the craziness of governments. Lord, help us to have continued faith in you. May this increase our faith in you. As we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us in every aspect of our lives, give it unto you. Help us to be discerning and wise in the word of God, that we may be ready, whatever may come our way. But we look to Jesus, and we thank him. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.